Welcome back to the bookcase, all of you discerning readers. Kate, in his past few weeks, has been calling you book nerds. I think discerning readers is far more distinguished, Catherine. Of course you did. You went to Princeton University. Of course you think discerning reader is best. I'll just go with book nerd. I think it was, I think it flows right off the tongue. You know, you, you, just book nerd, book nerd, book nerd. And I am, I am one of those. Yeah, it, it's symptomatic of your, <laughs> of your tendency to use one syllable words. But anyway, <laughs> it just shows the limits of each of our vocabularies. <laughs> you need to deal. <laughs> you need to deal in, in one syllable words which you particularly do when you're angry. (laughs) And I'm, anyway. Our guest today is Brendan Slocum. Uh, He has written a wonderful book called Symphony of Secrets, which as you imagine is built around the world of music. Brendan Slocum is himself a musician and has had a long career in teaching music and in playing in various ensembles around the Washington DC area and elsewhere. Very accomplished in his musicianship, but he's one of those people. It just tickles me, Kate. He decides during COVID he can't teach. Music performances are shut down because audiences aren't coming to venues where music is being played. So I think I'll write a bestseller. Why not? And he does. His first book, The Violin Conspiracy, did very well. And now Symphony of Secrets, you've read them both, right? Yes. Actually, The Violin Conspiracy, I believe, was also a GMA book club pick. Brendan Slocum, honored by that distinction. I always think these stories are sort of a double-edged sword because, you know, it's terrific. Hey, I have an opportunity. I'm going to sit down and write a book. That gives hope to authors everywhere, but it also gives hope to bad authors everywhere. (laughs) Just because you have the whim to write a book doesn't mean you should. But I, I think The Violin Conspiracy was terrific. I think it was one of the things that Brendan Slocum does really well and I think does even better in this book, Symphony of Secrets is he he writes beautifully about music. He's one of the best writers. It must be hard to write about music because it's not tangible and it's a very subjective thing to write about, but he writes beautifully about music. His first book was sort of a, a stolen Stradivarius uh, book. And this second book is, 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 I'm, I'm I'm trying to think of how to best summarize the plot. You did a nice you do you you do a good job at this, and you well, use the word discerning well in a sentence. It, so go for it's, it. It's over. I, to oversimplify it, first of all, Brendan Slocum is an African American, and he writes in this book about African American composers who were not heard. He does this in a fictional form, but he talks in his beginning and at the end of the book about a black composer by the name of William Grant Still who I had never heard, and I will go find his music. And Brendan hadn't heard of him. And he listened to some of the music written by this composer still, and he thought, this guy's incredible. Why don't people know of him? And then he got to the point of realizing that there are many composers, poets, a lot of people of minorities, perhaps, who haven't been heard. And so he sets this book in the 1920s, and it's the story of a composer, white composer, who is revered around the country but it's not his music. He is stealing the music of somebody he's mentoring, I guess you should say, who is herself black. And he keeps telling her, your music won't be heard because you're African-American, because you're black. But if it's published over the name of a white person, me, it will become popular. And it does. And that's basically the oversimplification of the story. So it has a purpose. It has a mission. As he says right at the beginning, when I was writing Symphony of Secrets, and I'm I'm quoting him now, I hoped given the unique time period we're living in, when the experiences of underrepresented communities are both celebrated and under attack, this book could make a difference. 
This book, he hopes, will get people, unheard voices, heard. So he writes his book around that mission. I think one of the things that really fascinated me, too, about the way he talked about William Grant still is one of the reasons he was so saddened by how surprised he was to hear of William Grant still. When he listened to William Grant Still's music, he realized that it had influenced other composers that he loved. So it changed the way he listened to George Gershwin, for instance. He started to realize that there are unheard influences everywhere and that you really have to listen for those influences when you're listening to the music of lauded great composers. I think he makes that point very, very well. I think he also makes the point that you should really listen you know, listen harder, listen harder to the people that are ignored because there is beauty there. And he makes that argument very well in Symphony of Secrets. So I think discerning readers will like this book and maybe even a book nerd or two will <laughs> like it as well, Kate. Here's our, conver- here's our conversation with Brendan Slocum. Brendan Slocum, it is good to have you in the bookcase. I'm often struck by where authors start. And right in your author's note, you say that you start essentially with a mission, that there are so many people whose voices in music or in poetry or in literature are never heard. And you start by saying, I want some of those voices to be heard. How did you get to that point? And how did you feel you could reflect that in a novel? Well, first, thank you guys so much for having me here today. I really wanted people to just take a moment and and do what a lot of us normally don't do, which is really listen, take a look and listen, listen to the voices that are not being heard. In the author's note at the beginning and in the acknowledgments at the end, you specifically bring up one name. And I think you even promised somebody in your acknowledgments that you will talk about this person until your dying day. So go ahead, get on your soapbox. Who is William Grant still? William Grant Still is a composer, a Black American composer who is just, he's a genius, absolutely brilliant, wrote some incredible music, did so much. He was the first Black American composer to have a work done by a major symphony orchestra. And, you know, he wrote operas, he wrote symphonies, he wrote chamber music, he wrote concertos. And he also wrote film scores. I'm a huge Perry Mason fan and I'm watching Perry Mason rerun, you know, one day and it's like, wow, that sounds a lot like William Grant Steele's music. I go and do a little bit of research. Boom. He'd written stuff for Perry Mason. <laughs> People just do not know about this American treasure that we have. So I'm shouting his name out right now. William Grant Still. I'm going to do sort of an interview no-no because the mission of the book is so important. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sort of telling us a little bit about what the plot synopsis is, because I want our listeners to be aware, too, that we're talking also, too, about two different stories. So in the past, Freddie Delaney is America's greatest composer. He's bigger than Beethoven and Bach and Mozart. He's huge. And he meets a musical genius named Josephine, and they work together. And it's one we wonder who the real genius is. Is it Josephine or is it Freddie? And in the present... Bernard Hendricks, who is a musicologist, is hired to do research into the long lost score for one of Delaney's most anticipated works. And during his research, he discovers Delaney may not have written any of his music and uh, it may have been stolen. And the corporation who runs Delaney's foundation will stop at nothing to keep that a secret. 
I'm interested to like, well, I want to go back to the process a little bit. So you start with William Grant still, you know, you have this mission that you want to tell. What was the first seed of the story for you? Was it Josephine? Was it Freddie? Was it the unfinished symphony or was it your modern characters? Oh, it's great. Great question. It actually started for me with, it was a combination of Josephine and William Grant Still. I know about William Grant Still because, you know, he was introduced to me in college and I was amazed at how many people did not know about this great composer. And in terms of Josephine, you know, I have a lot of people who live with autism in my life and I've taught kids who live with autism. My nephew lives with autism. My best friend's brother, people I play with in the symphony, their kids live with autism. And I wanted to represent that community, the neurodivergent community in a positive way. And what better way than to combine one of my favorite composers who a lot of people don't know about and a community that people don't understand. I figured it would be a perfect way to weave a great story together. Not to mention, like, with George Gershwin actually was the basis for the composer, Freddie Delaney. People are really unaware that William Grant Still, there's this controversy. Did he steal from Gershwin or did Gershwin steal from him? In Still's first symphony, you clearly hear the theme to I Got Rhythm. And then a few years later, hey, George Gershwin comes out with this wonderful piece of music that everyone is singing. And it's like, hmm, who did it first? Well, we know who did it first. Huh. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't know that at all. Third movement of his first symphony. You'll hear it. I'm interested in the way you have the book arranged. You have an overture that's, you know, in 1969, you move on to a book in five different acts. So I guess what I want to ask is why that structure? And then did you write the story in a linear fashion and then rearrange, rearrange it to match what you wanted to do with that five act structure? Well, I am a musician first and foremost. The writing for me comes secondary. I am a musician and anything that I can lay out in terms of music, it's going to be not only easy for me to understand, but entertaining for people to they, they, people will get a kick out of that. So and it just makes perfect sense to me. And in terms of the structure for writing, I actually started with the Freddie and Josephine sections and mm. I probably wrote five or six chapters. And then I started with the burn and ebony sections in the present days. And then I kind of mixed in and then I would go from back and forth, back and forth. I'd write a chapter in the 20s and the chapter in the present day after I'd written about five or six chapters of each. Interesting. So you really, you wrote it woven together yes, already. Absolutely. I'm interested too, because when you introduce Josephine for the first time, you introduce her with a word that I had not heard. And then I then went ahead and looked up and fell down the music rabbit hole, which I imagine is one of the pleasures for you. You as a writer, you're like, I sent you down a music rabbit hole. Awesome. A scherzo. Mm -hmm. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Perfectly correct. My apologies to all Italians out there. <laughs> Why use that particular way to introduce Josephine? How do you feel like that word and Josephine are connected? Well, a scherzo for my music friends, you know, we know that that's a, a movement or a dance that's quick and fast, a quick, short, fast piece. And for that particular section with Josephine, you know, it was the initial introduction. You know, I wanted boom in your face. Here it is. Boom. I was fascinated by Josephine. She is African-American. She's the voice behind Delaney. She's really the person writing the music. And yet you just said a moment ago, she's autistic. I wasn't sure she hears noises, all sorts of noises. And in her head, that converts to music. I looked up something called synesthesia. It's an ability of people to be able to translate things into music, or they see colors and they hear music. How did you 
come up with that character. Well, Josephine actually does have synesthesia and she does live with autism. Autism is is such a, I don't want to say it's new, but it's newly categorized within the 20th century. You know, there were it's, it's been around for centuries, but people really didn't know what it was. And there's so many different layers to living with autism. And I wanted to bring in the aspect of synesthesia, that condition, because one of my favorite composers, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, he lived with synesthesia. Really? Really? Before wow. I knew that about him, I would say to myself, man, his music is just incredible. And Every instrument, just whatever it can do, it does it to its fullest ability. And he was just amazing at painting landscapes with music. And a lot of it was due to the condition of synesthesia that he had. And I thought that would be really interesting to apply it to Josephine because she is such a genius. And, you know, that's another one of those aspects that kind of gets lost. Are we really listening to her or are we just kind of overlooking her because she's got a neurodeficient condition? It seems to me that writers who write stories such as these can make a choice. You can either make the racism an obvious dastardly villain in the story, or you can make it a gradual, insidious, inescapable, unchecked character arc like happens in Freddy. But how do you as a writer go about applying your skill to make that arc sort of believable and sustainable? You know, if it's a work of fiction, you know, I I want it to be based in realism. So I don't want it to be racism, 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 in your face, in your face, in your face. This is just how it was at this particular time for this particular group of people. In the story, you know, it's in the early 20s and Josephine being a black woman, she couldn't go certain places and it was whites only in certain spots and you couldn't be seen with black people in a certain part of town and you couldn't do certain things, you know, and that was real. Frederick Delaney continues to tell Josephine well, we can't attribute your music to you because you're black and therefore the world will not acknowledge you because you're black. Have you found in the classical music business underlying racism? Yes, sometimes intentional, other times completely unintentional. For a long time, you know, people just did not realize and did not understand that black people were capable of more than we were given credit for. So with this story, you know, I have to say in Freddie's defense, well, first, I love Freddie Delaney. I would like to go and hang out with this guy. I would totally (laughs) have a beer with him. He is a great, great guy. And it has never been more true that saying the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Freddie has the best intentions for Josephine. He truly felt that he was Brandon. He's a thief. <laughs> he's stealing <laughs> her music. In his, in he his is head. A- he was doing the right thing for her. There was some truth to, you know, they would not have acknowledged that the music that she had written was playable and sellable. No, we can't do this because you're black. So let me do it for you. I'm going to get your music out there. He was doing the wrong thing for the right reason. He really was in his heart. He wouldn't acknowledge her. He wouldn't let the world know that it was her. He was a thief. That's why I asked dad about sort of the evolution. Like it's easy, I think, not easy, but it's in some ways, I think it's easier to write a dastardly racist villain right from the get go. You know, I'm going to I'm going to find this woman and she oh look, she's talented. I wonder what she has in her bag that I can take. That's what I was asking Brendan about is how do you apply your talent to creating that out of something rather than starting at that point? I truly think Freddie in his head, really in his head, he 
honestly thought that he was doing the right thing. And how can you fault someone for thinking that they're doing the right thing? Whether he is or is not, that's to be determined. But in his head, he was truly doing the right thing. He was doing his best for Josephine. He truly did care for her. One of the things that you did in your first book, Violin Conspiracy, and one of the things that you do so well in Symphony of Secrets is you have to write about music in a very, like you have to sort of educate your readers, but you also have to write about the beauty of music, but you also have to write about when music isn't working. Like, how do you use language to sort of balance between like educating your reader academically and giving credence to your characters, but also making it still feel artistic? Well, that was actually a challenge in the beginning with The Violent Conspiracy because everything that I wrote music-wise, everything was technical. It was a technical term. (laughs) And I would let my non-musician friends read early drafts and they would just, I have no idea what this means. No (laughs) clue. So I had to really find a way. It's like, what does it feel like for me when I'm playing? This is the feeling that I get. What does it feel like when I'm working really hard to make someone else feel the same thing that I'm feeling? You know, that's what it's like for me. So I really wanted that book is really for non-musicians, believe it or not. And music is such a wonderful, powerful thing that everyone can relate to. So I wanted to just bring everyone along in the journey. Just this is what it's like for a musician. But I had the same question as I read both books, which is it seems to me it's difficult for an author to take music, which is sound and which is harmony and which leads one note to the other. What kind of language you feel you need to use to put that into prose? Lots of trial and error, a lot. And it really helped me because as a classroom teacher, you know, I've been a teacher for a couple of decades. And I would say to my students when we were about to play a piece, you know, the first time we play through something, I don't say anything. We just play and it's notes. And then I give them a bit of background and I tell them what it means to me. This is what it means to me. And then they can start to develop their own feelings. And through that, it totally becomes a work of art and it becomes music through their own interpretations. You know, it's just about feelings and nature and life and beauty and everything in between. I always read author notes because I sometimes I find great tidbits for the interview. At the very end, you thank your family profusely providing you with lots of Kevinisms because you felt it was very important to the book. Who was Kevin and why is he so important to the book? Thank you so much for uh, asking. Kevin Bernard Slocum was my youngest brother. I lost him to cancer in 2021. He is Bern Hendricks and he was one of the most talented people I have ever met in my entire life. If I had an inkling of his talent, I would be doing incredible things right now. And I had to pay tribute to him. And I I told him before he passed away, I told him I was going to memorialize him. I'm going to immortalize you. You're going to be on print forever. And certain things that I'd forgotten that he would do and he would say, it was nice to talk to my sister. Hey, do you remember when he was it me or did he really do that? Oh yeah. He would do that all the time. Or, you know, Hey, yeah, he would, there was one wrinkle on his shirt and he would pull out the ironing board and just go, what are you doing? It's a wrinkle. Nobody cares. No one can see that, you know? And you know, it, it was just, I just wanted to pay tribute to him because I love him and I miss him dearly. And the world really lost out on um, a tremendous artist. You play the flute, the clarinet, the violin. You're a best-selling novelist and you play with orchestras and bands. I don't think you're slacking. Like, I think Kevin's, I think Kevin's okay with that. 
Okay. All right. Only because you say so, Kate. All right. Thank you. <laughs> but now do you consider yourself a musician or a writer primarily? I am always going to be a musician. I'm a musician who writes. I'm a musician. You know, if someone said, hey, you could write all day long or you could play your fiddle all day long, I'm going to choose the fiddle every time. Mm. It's, it saved my life. You know, I owe the violin. I love it. One of the things I really enjoyed about this book, too, because it's one of the things that my friends and I always talk about is you can always tell so much from a character by what they're listening to. <laughs> I felt like I got to know Byrne just by what he was listening to in the office. I would imagine that's a great way to express character for you is just to give them a playlist. Yeah. The only thing with Symphony of Secrets, though, all of the pieces of music are made up. Everything is a made up piece. And people have asked me, is there a list? Where can I find this music? I'm like, uh, as soon as I write it, I'll, I'll give it to you. But no, every, every single piece, everyone from the Quicksilver Symphony to the Spiderweb Waltz, everything is made up. And it's so funny because people's, well, where did this come from? Anyone who has seen it, I reference this, anyone who has seen the movie, The Usual Suspects, I hope if people have not seen it, I was like, I Kaiser so said every single thing, <laughs> everyone. I'm glad you guys got that. Everything that Josephine says, I Kaiser so said all the pieces that Byrne is listening to, I totally Kaiser so said <laughs> That's one of Kate's favorite movies, too. I want to come back to that question about racism in classical music. I've gone to see a lot of orchestras, many, many orchestras, and there are not many black faces in those orchestras. It it is a sad state. It really is. People are beginning to realize, hey, this group that I'm watching right now is not necessarily representative of the city that I live in. You know, New York Philharmonic has one black person, the, the principal clarinetist, um, you know, and, and out of the city of New York, you know, that's full of every ethnicity you can imagine. So I, I think people are beginning to realize, hey, this is something that does need to change. And I think it's we're, we're at the beginning of a major change. Brendan Slocum, thank you for being with us in the bookcase. This has been fantastic. You guys are awesome. I like this. <laughs> Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous.
Rapid fire questions for Brendan Slocum. What's the most overrated piece of classical music? Uh, uh, New World Symphony, Vorjak. Why? Because it is super overplayed. It's not even his best piece of music, but it's his best known piece of music. And it's not even that great. Do you compose? I am a songwriter, but I'm not an orchestral composer. All right. Is it easier to write a novel or a song? Song. Definitely. Because I have music in my head all the time. So it's so much easier to just, yeah. And it's usually when I'm in the shower, I'm like, da, 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 da. Oh, that's great. I got to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> Will you always write about music, future novels that you have in you? Will there always be a musical theme? Absolutely. I want to be the Stephen King of musical thrillers. <laughs> <laughs> Do you read your own words aloud like music? Absolutely. It sounds differently in my head than it does, you know, I'm doing what other people will eventually do. So I want to take it from their point of view. So I absolutely read everything aloud. So like when you listen to somebody who's practicing, are you like listening, 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 and then you go, ooh, no, no, wrong note, wrong note, wrong note. Yes. That's why it's it's difficult for me to listen to classical music to relax. I'm constantly analyzing it, constantly. (laughs) Do you hear music always in your head? Yes. If you blow a horn, if there's a horn blowing up, that's a C sharp and an E. Yep. Oh, that's an F and a G. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. All the time. All the time. The big piece, like the aspirational piece of music that you haven't tried yet, but you want to. <sighs> Let me see. Oh my gosh. That would be the, that I haven't tried yet. That would be the concerto by, I want to do the, it's not a concerto. It's a, it's a piece by, Oh my gosh. Uh, I can't think of his name. Oh my gosh. Um, I just kind of gave up on it because, oh, yeah, this is too hard for me, but I love the piece. Uh, it is a Morceau de Concours by uh, Bazzini. <laughs> yes, Bazzini. I love the idea that you racked your brain so hard because if you had been like, it's the Bada Bing Symphony by Tony Soprano, we would have been like, yes, we know that piece of music is a great piece of music. There's no way we would have been able to check you on that. I have no idea. Anyway, sorry, Dad, go ahead. Who's your favorite composer? Antonin Vorjak. Really? Yeah. There's a picture of him in my living room. I, I love the guy. Book that made you want to write? Animal Farm. Why? Hmm. Because it it did everything. It scared me. It made me sad. It made me happy. I was excited. Every emotion you can imagine, I went through when I read that book. You came to writing somewhat late in life after a career in music and teaching. What gave you the audacity to think, I can write a best-selling novel, and then you go do it? COVID-19. That's totally what it was during the summer of 2020. All of my lessons, my rehearsals, my cons, everything stopped. And as a working musician, you know, that was my revenue. So I had nothing to practice for. for, And we didn't know how long it was going to go on. I was sitting on the couch eating, uh, getting fatter and fatter. And I submitted (laughs) a novel, the best novel that has never been published that I'd written 20 years ago. And it's the greatest book in the world. I actually submitted it and I got a letter back saying this novel is absolutely awful, but you should try (laughs) writing what you know, and it is not science fiction. So I wrote the first chapter of The Violin Conspiracy, which was Ray sitting in his high school classroom. And the agent said, this is good. Can you write this book? And I was like, yeah, I'm doing nothing else except Doritos in my, you know, every other five seconds. But I wrote it. And I actually, when I was writing about five chapters in, I said to myself, huh, this is actually pretty entertaining. I'm digging this. And if I'm liking it, then maybe somebody else will like it. So I had time. I had plenty of time. What a wonderful story. 
Wonderful story. Oh, I do like the idea of Brendan Brendan Slocan, the science fiction novelist. I really like that One idea. One day I'm going to rewrite it. One day. All right, great. Uh, the violin that came from Mars. Um, the uh, the last question we stole from Stephen Colbert, but we always think it's illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Giving, kindness, nice, simple, happy. Lovely. And I would hope melodic. Oh, well, yeah, that too. Brendan Slocum, as you mentioned, very much of a Renaissance man. Yeah, all kinds of intrinsic talent oozing out of that man. Doesn't that kind of make <laughs> you hate him a little bit? Like he plays the flute, he plays the oboe, he plays the clarinet. He's a violin virtuoso. He's a best-selling author. He's taking, I mean, like that is a man that is sucking the joy out of the marrow of life. Like he just, he is taking his talents to the fullest. And it's really, <laughs> it's its its awesome to watch. One of the parts of the book that interested me, he, as you heard in our conversation, he describes Joseph. Josephine, who is the true composer in this book. This condition of synesthesia really interested me, and I sort of wish I had it because I love hearing music and I wish I heard it just at, at odd times. Seems like a potentially beautiful way to see the world, although it also seems like a haunting way to see the world. I would describe Josephine and Brendan as somewhat haunted by music. Even when they mm. want to get away from it, probably they can't. But it's a really great page turner and it makes some amazing points. And I think Brendan accomplishes his mission, which is to get me to look farther and deeper into who composes music and who influences music. And I look forward to looking into composers that I've never heard of before because of this book. So Brendan, well done. Yep, yep. We got fascinated by, I mean, we had this conversation with Brendan who talked about, if you've read The Violin Conspiracies, there are some very stark examples of racism against classical black musicians. And I said to him, wow, these are really, these are very stark. And he said, a lot of these happened to me. They are real examples of things that happened in my life. And so we became sort of fascinated by trying to looking into organizations that perhaps help to fill these chairs in orchestras with diverse musicians. And just after our conversation with Brendan, by sort of serendipity, we saw a piece that was sent to us about an organization in Detroit called Sphinx, the Sphinx organization, which for 25 years has been mentoring, training, boosting the careers of black classical musicians and trying to get them into all kinds of ensembles and has met with considerable success. We talked to Afa Dworkin about Sphinx and what they're doing. And as she says, to look at major American orchestras, that's just one metric of our success, but we've had success in many areas. So we called up Afa Dworkin. She was delighted. I hope she was delighted to talk to us. <laughs> Here's our conversation with her. Afa Dworkin, we were just talking to Brendan Slocum about the fact that there is so little representation in major orchestras and in classical music generally. I, I, why is that, do you think? There's not a great deal of awareness or knowledge of the incredible talent that does exist within communities of color as expressed within our sector in classical music. There are contemporaries of Mozart and before who have written music, played music, and in fact helped to create what today is importantly termed as canon of classical music. And today, even anecdotally speaking, there are hundreds and thousands of musicians who, musicians of color who are involved in classical music. Sphinx alone has about 1,100 alumni throughout its 25-year history. So I think there's certainly not a lack of talent 
but there is a lack of awareness and there certainly is a lack of access. So in such a way, I think it's more that we as a society need to recalibrate ourselves as to what it is that we're aware of and where there is talent, where do we reward it and also retain it and continue to develop it. I know that Sphinx is going into different schools that might not necessarily have these resources. And I'm interested because you, in some ways, you have a tougher mission than than providing math support. You know, all, it's, all a student needs for math support is a pencil and a piece of paper. You're not just providing instruction, you're providing musical instruments, none of which are cheap. This work is certainly rewarding, but it is one that requires um, significant resources. And that is definitely a challenge. So both throughout the nation, but also specifically in our hometown of Detroit, as well as in Flint, Michigan, we do work throughout the year, as well as in the summer, in public schools that often, or almost without exception, don't have any access to instrumental music instruction throughout the year or in the summer. So Sphinx comes in to fill that gap. What I think is the easy part is that there's a ton of talent, but what is a challenging part is that all of our programming to these young people is provided tuition-free, and we do provide instruments to 100% of the participating students. So it comes with an associated cost to have to make that happen and sustainable. When you say there's a lack of awareness and a lack of opportunity and a lack of... uh, Why is that? Why, Why isn't the classical community bringing... You say you have 1,100 graduates bringing those kinds of kids into their orchestras. Well, there's a reciprocal problem here that's a challenge. It's a lack of awareness. On the one hand, classical music as an establishment, certainly for a long time and to some extent today, has presumed that with diversity and representation, with participation of musicians from communities of color, there is a lack of talent and interest. Both things are false. I can say that from 25 years of working in this space. There's plentitude of talent and there's a lot of interest. In fact, the National Association for Community Music Schools has for a long time until recently tracked participation of young people in community music schools. And in fact, at an early age, our community music schools look look like our communities. In fact, they're very diverse and they're full of representation and there's plenty of interest and hunger and aptitude among young people of color to study in the instrument. Where we fail them is the retention piece and continue to provide those resources. I was going to ask you how you work with orchestras to make sure that your students and alumni get those all important first auditions. Yeah, it's a great question. We work with orchestras through a variety of different facets within our programming. We've got the National Alliance for Audition Support, as well as the Sphinx Orchestral Partnership Audition Program. Those programs couple the efforts of Sphinx, as well as 118 other orchestras, as well as the League of American Orchestras, which is the umbrella organization for all American orchestras, and the New World Symphony, which is sort of America's training academy for orchestral music. It marries the efforts of all of those organizations to not just provide training opportunities for musicians of of color, but also opportunities for coaching and mentorship, as well as a fund, a sizable fund that essentially helps to mitigate the costs associated Mm. with taking orchestral auditions on behalf of the musicians. Mm. Those are not insignificant. So there's Mm. that piece. Separate from it, we partner with these orchestras to create an annual competitive ground. So it's an annual national competition for orchestral excerpts from which there are finalists and winners in each division in each instrumental category. The finalists and winners of these categories receive training and also paid performance opportunities with these 118 orchestras. So all of that is done so as to create a more sensible, logical, and hopefully helpful pathway 
of placement, of permanent placement within these orchestras for these aspiring musicians of color. I take your point that the number of minority faces in major orchestras in the United States is only a metric, just one metric. Mm -hmm. But do you think there's a realization on the part of orchestras that they need to diversify, that they need to look like the country? And if they want to remain financially viable, they need to do that. They need to reach out to more than just old fogies like me uh, to come to their concerts. I think what we see are the beginnings of realization that this is an existential concept. I don't think we're yet at a place where this truth is embraced and recognized because otherwise we'd be farther along. It isn't a simple problem, but it is, it's definitely intuitive and it is one that's a solvable problem. But for that, it needs to be prioritized. So I don't think as a whole, we're in a place where as sort of a body of institutions and as a field, orchestras, opera companies have recognized that this is a path to survival. Afa Dworkin, we appreciate your talking to us. This is your mission, the Sphinx Organization, to develop and nurture a young minority talent in the classical music field, a worthy goal, one that I think Brendan Slocum pointed out well when we talked to him. Good luck to you. You've got a lot of musicians. The talent is there, Mm -hmm. and I hope it continues to be recognized. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Alpha Dworkin, thank you so much. Our conversation with Alpha Dworkin of the Sphinx Organization, hopefully changing the faces of orchestras around the country. Next week, we are going to talk to Dave Barry, who's a humorist hero of mine ever since childhood. Yes, some people have, uh, you know, Superman as their heroes. No, I had humorous columns as Dave Barry. But, you know, that probably speaks more to my childhood than anyway. So... Tune in next week, Swamp Story. It's a really, really fun read. You're not going to want to miss it. A few words about the folks that make this podcast possible, and then a coda from Brendan Slocum. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with Sure Can Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian. I want everyone to be happy and I want everyone to spread happiness and whatever you can do to make someone else happy, please do that because there just is not enough happiness in the world and life is too short not to be happy. Mm